0: If you join me in Bible study tonight, please open up to the book of Matthew to chapter 11, as this is our third Friday night in a row where we are looking at questions that have been submitted by folks in the congregation. And when you get to Matthew 11, give me a thumbs up and I'll start reading the first question. says, regarding Matthew eleven twenty five. 25. At that time, Yeshua answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. The question is, with, when so much of the Old Testament stresses the importance of acquiring wisdom and understanding, why would Yeshua have prayed here as if being wise and prudent ought to disqualify someone from having insight into Yeshua's teachings. Wouldn't it have been more consistent for Yeshua to thank the Father for revealing things to the wise and prudent and the babes? So let's look at Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. It says, at that time Yeshua answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. To understand this verse, we have to look at the context. Where did Messiah center his ministry? Where did he give so many of the great teachings? And where did he feed the multitudes?
1: Capernaum.
0: At Capernaum was the center, and he fed the multitudes around the Sea of Galilee, right? Up in the Galilee. We'll look up at verse 21. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe do you best say to these are little fishing villages around the Sea of Galilee up near Capernaum. For if the mighty works which were done in you have been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven. Why exalted to heaven? Because this is where he centered his ministry. This is where he taught so many great sermons, right? This is where he healed Peter's mother-in-law. You who are exalted to heaven will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works which are done in you have been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you, this shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So why was it that the people of Capernaum and Chorazin and Bethsaida these Galilean fishing villages in which Messiah taught so many sermons. He fed the 5,000, the 4,000, did so many great healings and miraculous wonderings. Why didn't they repent and believe? Well, the
1: problem is the wise and prudent were the
0: ones who didn't. problem is the wise and prudent were the ones who didn't. So this is almost tongue-in-cheek, right? They are the self-righteous. They're the ones who believe themselves. To be wise and prudent. They're the
1: ones who question him and wouldn't accept his
0: answers. They're the ones who question him and won't accept his answers. This is where the scribes and the Pharisees come in. They wouldn't accept him because he didn't act like they thought he should. So they consider themselves so high and mighty. And the babes he's referring to are those that are willing to humble themselves like little children and come with childlike faith. So if we turn to Matthew chapter 13, which is just a little bit after this, after he's been grilled and grilled by the scribes and Pharisees, the disciples ask, why do you speak to the people in parables? Because they don't understand. Let's go to Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 to 17. Yes.
2: Could it also have something to do with, like the, the scripture that said, Yeshua said, a prophet has no honor in basically like where they come from. Yeah. I, can't, I can't exactly quote it at the moment.
0: Yeah, but you're right. That applies up in Nazareth in particular. The people that knew him when he was growing up, they're not ever going to listen. So
2: do you think that, that kind of could tie along that same lines? It's like they didn't repent because it's like, oh, that's that guy that we've seen a thousand times. Yeah,
0: I'm sure that it factored into it. Because remember, most of the disciples were cousins of Messiah. Yeah. So let's look at Matthew chapter 13 beginning in verse 10 and see why he teaches in parables so that people have a hard time understanding. Verse 10, it says, the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And Messiah speaks to the disciples in plain, simple Hebrew, but to the masses he speaks in parables. He answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Why? Because the disciples want to know and the masses don't. Says whoever has, to him more will be given. Talking about the disciples. As they learn, as they grow, as they inquire, as they listen, they learn more and more. And he will have abundance, but whoever does not have, Because they don't want the wisdom and knowledge. Even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see. Why don't they see? Because they don't want to see. Because if they see, then they have to repent. They have to change their ways. And hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled which says... Hearing you will hear and shall not understand. And seeing you will see and not perceive. And verse 15 begins with four, because, this is why, because the hearts of this people have grown dull. What's that mean? That means they're cold. They're cold. They don't have the love for God. They don't want to be close to God. Their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes they have closed. Who closed them? They, closed them. they did. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. They don't want to repent because they enjoy the sins in which they live. Verse 16 goes on to say, but blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. That's why he speaks to the disciples in plain Hebrew. Because they want to see, they want to hear, they want to know. It says, for surely I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And then then comes the therefore, and he launches into another parable. Alrighty. The next question the person who sent them in deleted most of the question, but left a little bit. And I wanted to address the little bit, even though the person said, oh, just, just scratch that off. And it says, similarly, Leviticus nine states that the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by playing the harlot, she profanes her father. She shall be burned, Hebrew 3.13, with fire. Let's go back to Leviticus 21, 9. Leviticus 21, 9. You can tell by the fact it begins similarly. There was more to the question, but then the person decided not to ask it. But that's no reason for me not to talk about it. Leviticus 21, 9. The usual punishment, if the scriptures prescribe a punishment of death, was carried out by stoning. But there were a few offenses that were considered so abominable that the sentence of death was not by stoning but was by burning. And this is one of those, let's look at 21.9. The daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by playing the heart, she becomes a prostitute. She profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire. They say the way the burnings with fire were done is that the mouth was held open and bubbling hot metal was poured down the throat. This is a horrible, horrible way to die. And it was held out for those offenses that were considered just so heinous. So never do that. Okay, next question. Regarding Romans 5, 12 to 13, so we may as well turn to it before I read it. Romans 5, Romans 5, verses 12 to 13. Let's just read it together. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, who is that?
1: Adam.
0: Adam. And death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, Why? Because we're all descended from Adam. Because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. The question is, he says sin existed from the beginning. Is that true, sin was from the beginning? Yeah. But then seems to contradict himself when he says, but there was no penalty for sin until the law existed implying the Torah given on Mount Sinai. That's where the question goes array, right? Because that's not the implication. It says, but there absolutely was law and sin and consequences from the very beginning. Now that's true, that's true. And Paul is even referring to Adam when he says, through one man's sin entered the world, and clearly sin was imputed. Because God was metering out judgments and punishments on countless numbers of people way before Mount Sinai. What are your thoughts? My thoughts are, it's incorrect to say, implying the Torah given on Mount Sinai. Torah has existed from when? From the beginning. How do we know? Look at Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at all kinds of examples that happen where sin is imputed to people before Mount Sinai. So Adam and Eve ate, that was a sin against the Torah. Cain killed Abel, there was the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah. So what this sentence is getting at, these two verses, verses 12 and 13, is that before a child is old enough to understand the Torah, before they're old enough to understand right from wrong, God does not impute sin to the child. But once the child comes of age, then sin is imputed. So Paul's looking at himself and saying, when I was a baby, I didn't know right from wrong. And God didn't hold me accountable for it. But once I got mentally mature enough to understand right from wrong, what God requires in the Torah, then he started holding me accountable. Let's look at some of the verses that would indicate this. Go first to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. Verses 13 to 16. If you remember the consequences, Ahaz was king in Israel. And God had made some promises through Isaiah to King Ahaz and said, now ask me for a sign. What did Ahaz say? I I will not ask a sign. Why? Because he didn't believe God would do it anyway. He didn't believe in God from the first place. It says, verse 12, but Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Verse 13, here's where we pick up. Then he said, who's he? It's the Lord. Look at verse 10. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, then he said, hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but you will weary my God also. And he's speaking through Isaiah, just like you said. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. So Ahaz wouldn't ask for one. Lord says, well, I'm going to give you one anyway. Behold the Alma, it says here, virgin. It just means a virtuous young woman. Shall conceive and bear a son. This is actually in the near term, the wife of Ahaz shall conceive and bear a son, the son will be Hezekiah, one of the most godly kings Israel had. In the long term, it's talking about the Virgin Mary giving birth to Messiah. And shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. So what does that verse mean, verse 16? For behold, the child shall know, before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good. It means before the child is old enough to be mentally able to distinguish between right and wrong, good and evil, lawlessness and righteousness, then the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. Did that come to pass? It most certainly did. But what does God indicate in verse 16? That there's a an age below which a child just simply doesn't have the mental capacity to understand right from wrong, to refuse the evil and choose the good. Let's look also at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Let's look in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Verse 11. This is the same Apostle Paul speaking as he did in Romans chapter 5. Since when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. Meaning what? When he got to an age of mental acuity and the ability to understand then he no longer spoke, understood and acted as a child but he had to put into process the ability to distinguish right from wrong and to put away childish things and then in Romans chapter 7 Romans chapter 7 verse 9 just two chapters after the Romans 5 upon which the question is based Romans chapter 7 verse 9 Paul himself is saying I was alive once without the law meaning when I was a child when I was too young to understand but when the commandment came that is when I was old enough to understand sin revived and I died in a commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death, because he broke them. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. What does our sinful, mortal nature do whenever God says, thou shalt not? Oh, yeah. <laughs> we want to do it, don't we? Even if we didn't want to do it before. Yeah. But verse 12 says, therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Let me check these off as I answer them to the best that I can. The next question. says, if priests were supposed to retire from being priests at age, what is it? 50, right. Numbers 8, 25 to 26. Why was Zechariah who was old in Luke 1:7 so presumably older than 50 serving in the temple? Luke chapter 1 verses 8 to 9. So let's go back and check the premise first to Numbers chapter 8. Does God give a minimum limit and a maximum limit for serving as priest? He does. Numbers chapter 8, verses 25 to 26. We'll start in 23 for context to make sure we get the whole thought. Numbers chapter 8, starting in verse 23. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, what's that word saying? It's a quote. This is what pertains to the Levites. Was Zechariah a Levite? Yes, he was. From 25 years old and above, one may enter to perform service in the work of the tabernacle of meeting. Now, I thought a priest didn't start duty until 30. Levite and priests are not the same, same, but the priests have a five-year apprenticeship where they're learning. They don't just step into the temple (laughs) and begin performing services on day one. Did you have a question? Go ahead. Okay, verse 25, and at the age of 50 years, they must cease performing this work and shall work no more. They shall minister with their brethren. They may minister with their brethren in the tabernacle meeting to attend to needs, but they themselves shall do no work. Thus you shall do to the Levites regarding their duties. So they have a five-year apprenticeship, then they serve in their duties from 30 to 50, and then after age fifty, they can help the others, but they don't do the services themselves. Okay. Um, so would twenty-five be a reasonable answer for when? So would twenty-five be a reasonable answer for when? A person would be considered mature enough to. Person would be considered mature enough to be accountable. For be accountable? I would say no. Because what did God use in the wilderness to determine who could go in the land and who couldn't? 20 20 and above. 20 and above died in the wilderness. Below that, they got to go in the land. So if I was gonna pick an arbitrary number, I'd go with 20. Okay, and let's carry on to Luke. To the priest in question. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, was in fact a priest. He was the order of Abijah. He was serving in the temple according to the order of his service. And let's start with Luke chapter 1 and read verses 5 through 9. Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 9. There was in the days of Herod the king of Judea. Why do you know about Herod? Was he an Israelite? He was an Idumean, a descendant of Esau. Why would there be a descendant of Esau as king of Israel who appointed this king? Rome. Yeah. He was rubbing it in the Jewish people's faces. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias, you realize it's Zachariah, comes from the Hebrews, which means what? The Lord remembers. Mm-hmm. Of the division of Abijah, that tells us when he serves during the year. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth, or in Hebrew, Elisheva, which means the oath of God. So put their names together. The Lord remembers the oath of God. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. If they're walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless, And Zechariah is serving as priest in the temple, then is he over 50? He's not. If he was over 50, he would not be walking in the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. Verse 7 says, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. It doesn't say they were geriatric cases, just that they were well advanced. Normally girls got married around what the age of twelve to fourteen in Israel in those days. If he's fifty years old, they've probably been married for at least thirty years and had no children. So would you expect after thirty years of having no children, she would just naturally come up pregnant one day? The answer is no. So, so years,
1: your advanced in years, right? Yes. <laughs>
0: At 50, you're advanced in years. Back in the days of Luke's writing, did people live to be 700 years old? No, they didn't. No.
1: It just seemed like
0: it. Yeah. If I was 50 years old and my wife and I had never had any children, would I expect to miraculously have a child in nine months? I would not expect it.
2: I mean, you kind of, in your mind, picture it being like Abraham and Sarah, like Year man and a year woman
0: yeah, you and picture Abraham was 100, Sarah was 90, but it doesn't say here that they were. But since they were blameless according to the commandments and the statutes of God, that means he's not over 50.
2: So he's probably 49 and a half, would you say? He's probably, probably
0: 49 and a half, yeah. I would say. He was pushing the retirement age. He <laughs> was pushing the retirement age, which is why it's so significant that he's been, chosen, he's been chosen to burn incense. Who chooses the priest to burn incense? God does. is chosen by lot. So you can only burn incense in the temple at most once in your entire lifetime. So all the priests that are on duty that have never gotten to do it, their names essentially are all put in a hat. And by lot, God determines who's going to pray that particular day. So God chose Zechariah. He's never gotten to do it. And in 20 years, his name's never come up and suddenly his name comes up, he gets to go in and burn incense, and he prays what prayer? The Amidah, which includes from Malachi, go to Malachi, keep a finger in a loop, go to Malachi. Malachi, chapter four. God bless you. God bless you. Malachi chapter four, verses four to six. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I command him in horror for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Now go back to Luke 1. Verse 10. And the whole multitude of the people is praying outside at the hour of incense. What are they praying? Same thing thing he's praying. If they're praying at the same time and it's a scripted prayer, shouldn't they finish about the same time? Mm -hmm. They should. So verse 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense and when Zachariah saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You shall call his name Yochanan. John. People go, oh, he's in there praying for a son. No, he's praying the Amidah. The Amidah is for the sending of Elijah the prophet. Verse 16 and he will turn away many of the children of Israel to the Lord their will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go on before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, quote, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, unquote. Where's that quoted from? Malachi four, where God promises to send Elijah. What happens in verse twenty one? And the people waited for Zachariah and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. They finished the Amidah, and he doesn't come out. And he doesn't come out. And when he comes out, he's speechless. And they perceive that he had seen a vision in the temple. Well, you know he's not praying for his son because of verse 18. You know he's not praying for his son because of verse 18. Zachariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. So that wasn't the prayer. Yeah,
2: because if he was praying for a son, and then the angel said, you're going to have a son, uh uh you know, that would just be
0: why. Yeah, doesn't make sense, does it? So now turn to Matthew chapter 17, where Messiah tells us specifically that if the people had accepted Messiah at his first coming, then John would have fulfilled the role of John the Baptist. Where are you telling? Matthew 17.
2: And you know, if Zechariah was a man of faith, or a man that's blameless before God, he would have been a man of faith. So,
0: yes, he was a man of faith.
2: So if he was praying a prayer in faith, and then the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, you're going to have a son, he wouldn't have said, no.
0: No, oh, he would have said, "Yuhu! Yeah. <laughs> Let me go home and tell my wife. Exactly. There's another reason why it tells us that he was blameless because the children of Israel considered any woman who was barren that was a curse from God. And that tells us this was not a curse from God. This was a miraculous circumstance that God was using. So in Matthew 17 what they saw in verse 9 it tells us was a vision. But in verse 10, it says and the disciples asked him saying, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Why do they say that? Because of the prayer in Malachi 4. Yeshua answered and said to them, indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already and they did not know him, but did him whatever they wished. Likewise, the son of man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. So that wraps it all up nice and neat. What's he mean in verse 11? Indeed, Elijah is coming first. a A dual fulfillment prophecy. Are there prophets that are coming in the tribulation period to prophesy for three and a half years from the temple mount? One's Elijah. Who's the other? Enoch. <laughs> it's Moses. You know that. Matthew chapter 17 answers the question. All right. Next question. In Luke twelve 6, Let's go back to Luke. This is one that teaches us not to believe everything we read in English. Sometimes we have to look under the English. Luke chapter 12 verse 6 says, Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them is forgotten before God? So the question says in Luke 12 6, Yeshua refers to being able to buy sparrows for a certain amount of money. Why would sparrows have been bought and sold? How many of you go down to the meat market to buy a sparrow? No? No? Me neither. But the Greek word for sparrow there is not sparrow. It's struthion, which is the Greek word 4765, which is equivalent to the Hebrew word zippor, which is Hebrew 6833. What's in versus an oaf? The word oaf means bird, zippor is a small bird. So all this really says is are not five birds sold for two copper coins? So both of these words, the Greek word struthion and the Hebrew word zippor, both simply mean a little bird. What were the little birds used for? They were used in covenants and sacrifices. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 15. When God cut a covenant with Abraham. Genesis chapter 15. Verse 10. We'll start in verse 9 for context. Genesis 15 starting in verse 9. So he said to him that he is the Lord God. To him is Abram. Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. These turtle doves and young pigeons are just small birds. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other. He did not cut the birds, the zippareem, in two. So, God used them in making the covenant with Abraham. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 14. And that would imply that these birds are also clean birds. Yeah, these birds are also clean birds. Not that I would want to eat a pigeon. Not that I'd want to eat a pigeon. What do they call a a cooked pigeon? A A, squab. A squab. (laughs)
2: <laughs>
0: that didn't help, any. No, I never wanted to eat one, still don't.
1: That would be
0: better than four and twenty blackbirds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Boy, they taught us some strange things as kids, didn't they? They
1: did. We learned it.
0: Leviticus chapter 14, verses 4 to 6. Once a leper has been declared healed... Verse 4, Then the priest shall command to take from his to be cleansed two living and clean zipporim, small birds, cedarwood, scarlet, and hyssop. Better than a red heifer, cedarwood, scarlet, and hyssop, right? And the priest shall command that one of the birds, the zipporim, be killed in an earthen vessel over running water. As for the living bird, he shall take it, the cedarwood, and scarlet, and hyssop, and dip them and the living bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the running water. He shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed from the leprosy, and shall pronounce him clean, and shall let the living bird loose in the open field. These, in the Greek, would be called struthion, in the Hebrew, zipporim. Let's look also in Leviticus 14 at verses 49 to 53. Leviticus fourteen forty nine to fifty three. Leprosy can appear in houses and clothing, and there's other bodily discharges. So, verse forty: you shall take to cleanse the house. That's the house that had the plague. Two birds, zipporim, two small birds. Cedarwood, Scarlet, and Hyssop. They shall kill one of the birds in an earthen vessel over running water. You get the idea. And then in Deuteronomy 14, we learned that these clean birds, these clean small birds, we can eat. But God didn't say we have to. Okay. You can have my squab. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 11. All clean birds you may eat. It's gonna be the same word, Zipperine. So you can eat them unless they're forbidden. What kind of birds are forbidden? The ones that eat carrion. The ones that eat carrion. I never looked at a vulture and said, mm. <laughs> Have I ever looked at a vulture and said, Mmm, lunch? No, I, I assure you I have not. <laughs> Around where we are, there are a lot of turkey vultures. And at first look, you go, there's a turkey. Then you see his head, you go, oh, no, it's not. <laughs> On to the next question. Are we ready? Once we receive our resurrected bodies, somewhat like the angels, I think, has been the comparison. Well, let's go with that. Okay. It says, will we still have free will and choice in the Sabbath kingdom and eternal kingdom? Meaning, can we sin and fall once we've been resurrected? You're shaking your head. No, you're absolutely right. The answer is no. But we'll keep reading. I know I will want to continue to follow our Messiah. But even as some followed Satan, meaning some of the angels followed Satan and fell early on. Hopefully those who go on into the Sabbath rest will not choose to turn away even at that point. Do we have any clues about freedom of choice at even that time to come? So our question is, if our bodies, sometimes people liken them to being like angels, does that mean like angels we have the ability to fall and get cast in the lake of fire after we've been saved and resurrected? The answer to that, of course, is going to be no Once we have our resurrected bodies, we will not be able to sin. Let's go to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. We will start here. Verses 14 and 15. The great white throne judgment is over. Verse 14 says, Death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone that found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Death and Hades are no more. There is no more sin at that point. There is no more ability to fall. Let's look also at Revelation 21, verses 23 to 27. Yes, sir. Go back Kind of Go back and read goes, verse six of chapter twenty. Yeah,
2: that kind of just goes along
0: with what you just said. It says, blessed and holy, holy meaning righteous, set apart, right standing before God, is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Messiah and shall reign with him a thousand years. So that's a good add. Thank you. Those raptured and resurrected and the first resurrection will not...
2: Be at the um, great white throne judgment.
0: Will not be at the great white throne judgment. It describes them as holy. Right.
2: Because it says that second death has no power over
0: them. That second death has no power over them, which means they cannot be at the great white throne judgment. Right. You are correct.
1: Also in Romans chapter 7.
0: Also in Romans chapter 7. Verse 21
1: to the end, 25. That's a passage in which Paul is wrestling with the fact that he has the body of sin dwelling in his body, and he can't really get rid of it. And he's saying, well, who will deliver me from this? It's just, oh, thank God Yeshua yep. will deliver me. At, it's only at death. We have to reckon the old man dead every day. Most of us Ooh. find he's still there in the morning. Yeah. And it's, you know, Paul is really... Conflicted about that, but he says
0: Messiah Yeshua is going to deliver us from it.
1: Delivery because the body of sin, he talks about the verse 21, I find then a law that evil is present within me, and that's called the law of sin and death. Yeah. And unfortunately, some people in reading about law think that's the Torah. And it's not.
0: no. But right. anyhow,
1: it's. It, If you go back even to Genesis chapter 3, God spoke to Adam and He said, Who told you that you were naked? Yeah. He didn't know it before, but apparently a a spirit, maybe a demonic spirit, maybe that old man, is now present in him. And then sin is personified throughout the Scripture as a being with personality. Right. So we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we do wrestle against sin. Right. A personality. So I, I think there are many references through Scripture that uh, would say, yes, in this life we can't get away from it. We do our very best to crucify it. But in the world to come, it ain't going to be there. Right. So you there would be no desire to sin. It would be like you're offering a of dead man an ice cream he's
0: not going to accept it right so let's go on and look at some of those prophetic scriptures Revelation 21 verses 23 to 27 the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it for the glory of God illuminated it the lamb is its light and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its lights. And the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And it shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter into it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So all those raptured and resurrected saints whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, are they bringing sin into the city? They are not. And then Revelation 22, verses 3 to 4. Revelation 22, verses 3 to 4. In the middle of its street, that's the new Jerusalem, and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, Each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse. If there's no more curse, that means there's no more sin. There's no more death. Because all those in it, in their rapture and resurrected bodies, or that went alive into eternity future, are not subject to sin or to death. It says, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him.
2: I wonder if some of the confusion about, you know, whether you could you know, you get into your glorified body, Good and Loud. You, mm-hmm. If you could fall. I wonder if some of it comes from Isaiah sixty five where it talks about, you know, even the sinner at a hundred years old is a curse and dies, basically. So like you read verses like Isaiah sixty five, I and mean it's like, you know, you kinda see how People could get a little bit confused about, is that talking about me? Is it talking about the people who are going alive and have children in the kingdom? Yeah,
0: and that's exactly right. It's people who are alive in their physical mortal bodies. in Isaiah 65, that will die at 100 years old, being considered a child. Not you and I in our rapture and resurrected bodies.
2: Because it talks about the people having the
0: lives of a tree,
2: you
1: know, but...
0: Having the life of a tree, yeah. If you're resurrected, I mean, you never die, so... Right, never die. Before... Um, the flood, how long did people live? 900 years. 900 years, 969 years. That's like the length of a tree. So it's like being back in the Garden of Eden before mankind fell. The lives will again be that long. The next part of this person's question, or the next question, is also wanted about the head coverings for women and the wearing of tzitzit. I see some women wear and some do not, even within the messianic circles. Can you help for clarity and scriptural foundations for these instructions for women? Okay, hoping not to get crucified for the answers, let's start answering them. Head coverings go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 tells us what kind of head coverings we're talking about. We'll start in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. And I get a lot of questions about this down through the ages. Maybe I shouldn't say that, it may may sound real old. Over the decades, how about that? Verse 2. (laughs) I am advanced in years, and I feel them all. Verse 2. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions. What's that Greek word? Parodesis. Hebrew word. Halakha. Just as I deliver them to you. All of 1 Corinthians is about keeping Passover and how to do it properly. Paul has taught the church at Corinth these Gentiles who become believers, 1 Corinthians twelve two, to keep Passover, but they're not doing it quite right. And he's trying to make the little tweaks. So he praises them first. Hey, hey, you're keeping Passover. Now let's look at how you're doing it. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Messiah, the head of woman is man, and the head of Messiah is God. Why does he say the head of woman is man? Genesis chapter three. Keep a finger here. Go back to Genesis three. Yeah, I better give a
2: scriptural basis, and it's not just
0: our opinion. Yeah, I better give a scriptural basis, not say it's opinion, or I will get fl- uh, flamed. <laughs> Genesis three, verse sixteen. After the prophecy about the enmity between your seed and the seed of the serpent. Verse 16 says, To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. So because Eve was deceived by Satan, ate from the tree, and then gave to her husband and persuaded him to eat. She is given a subservient role to her husband. I know it doesn't go over well today. But let's go back to the scripture because that's what it says. That's why he says in verse 3, the head of woman is man. And the head of Messiah is God. Every man praying or prophesying having his head covered dishonors his head. This is where the question normally comes from. Hey, you're wearing a but You're breaking God's commandment. The keep is not what this is talking about. Let's keep reading. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. So this is where some people say, see, a woman has to wear a scarf or something at services, and that is not so. Let's keep reading. It's a misinterpretation of this. Verse 6, for if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. What does it mean to be shorn? Have all the hair shaved off. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but the woman from man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man and the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. Trust me, he's getting to the point. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. What covering are we talking about in 1 Corinthians 11? is the hair. Corinth was characterized by pagan temples, right? Which had both female and male homosexual prostitutes. The female homosexual prostitutes, or lesbians if you prefer had their hair cut real short and dressed butch to look like a man to service the lesbian women and the male homosexual prostitutes had long hair and painted eyes and painted nails to be it was all for sexual promiscuity purposes so Paul's saying If you come into God's house looking like those pagan prostitutes, what kind of a witness is that to the community? Do they see a difference between the house of God and the house of the prostitutes? So uh, the head coverings for women is talking about hair. Is it prohibited to wear a headscarf? The answer is, of course not. For a woman to wear a hat over here, of course not. But the head covering that First Corinthians 11 is talking about is the hair. Mm-hmm. Now, the zitzit. Okay. Yes, ma'am?
1: Can you clarify a bit more? Can I clarify a bit more? What they mean as if her head were shaved in five.
0: As, as if then? her head were shaved. So, to have the hair completely shaved off the head was a shameful thing, okay? So if a woman is wearing a haircut like I'm wearing at the moment, then she may as well have her head shaved. So she is already shaming herself.
3: I have a question, Wayne. when you
0: finish. Go ahead, Penny. I flew
3: back from Israel one time, and there were all the women on the plane, well, I mean, except the Americans that I was with, they had wigs on and they didn't have any hair on their head. I mean, they were completely bald except for wigs. So I they were, I guess, more orthodox. I've never seen that
0: before. It could be they hey, were cancer survivors and <clears throat> therefore had lost all the hair. It's a
3: custom.
1: Rabbi's wives shave
0: their heads. There's a custom that rabbis' wives shave their head and, and wear, wear wigs. Wig. It's yeah. Orthodox, yep. The uh, ultra orthodox do that. Well, it's a sin. <laughs> it's, wrong. it's wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. Yeah, we saw a lot of women in Israel. There were a lot of women
2: on planes that were, you know, ultra orthodox. You'd see them with a wig on, and the next minute you see them without hair, and with that hair goes, you know.
0: I I have not seen that. Thank goodness. You would
2: never see them without their wig. They might
1: have covered it with a shmata, but like. You
0: would never see their head on cover. Okay. Let's go on. (laughs) To the topic of Zitzit. Go to Numbers chapter 15. Oops, I see a red number one out there. Um, Can a man have long hair? The answer to that is no, it's not proper according to the biblical standards. Um. The rest of our question was, if he's not trying to look effeminate? And the answer in the scriptures is no. Um, what did Paul say? Does not nature itself teach you that it's shameful for a man to have long hair? Was that what it said? Yes. Let me go back to 1 Corinthians 11, look at the exact language. It dishonors this head. Verse 14. First Corinthians 11 14. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him?
1: Does that mean a long beard is a dishonor? No. His hair?
0: Yeah, it's not the same kind of hair. It's a different word. Different word. Okay. Different word. Yeah. Well,
1: seems like a lot of these things are just customs of the times because you had David's son Absalom with the long hair. Got him...
0: And was he a godly man? No, but
1: that didn't mean he was ungodly. (laughs) Yes, actually, he was
0: an ungodly man. Was he
1: the only person in Israel that had long hair? What about Samson?
0: The Nazarites were different. The reason the Nazarites had the long hair, and they may or may not have had long hair, Samson would have, and there were a couple others that were Nazarite from birth. Normally a Nazarite vow was only a few months. Rarely was it over a year. So the Nazirite wouldn't necessarily have long hair. These guys were marked by God to stand out from the crowd. So people would go, why does he? So if everybody had long hair, they wouldn't stand out from the crowd.
1: I'm just saying, you have
0: customs through times that change. Yeah. Yes, sir. Um, I, I, I was told a long time ago
3: that in, in Corinth, you had... Um, a whole sort of almost um, indeterminate sexuality, guys with lacquered, long, long black hair and dre- dressed in, in very ambiguous clothing. And um, like along DC. with the bit you mentioned about uh, the prostitutes, the these the sort of, uh, uh, don't quite know how they describe them. They did have a particular name for it, but I've forgotten But they had very, very long, lacquered hair, um, so I was told. But I've
0: only seen that in a couple of places, so I don't know the basis behind it. Okay. Let's go on to Zitzit. Numbers chapter 15, verses 37 to 41. Numbers chapter 15, verses 37 to 41. Long hair on men is really came into vogue in the 60s with sex, drugs, and rock and roll as a sign of rebellion, a sign of disorder. That's, that's just the, the world in which we live. Numbers 15, verses 37 to 41. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, so whose words are these? The Lord's. Speak to the children of Israel that word children literally is in the Hebrew sons but that's not determinative of anything because in biblical Hebrew when you have a mixed gender group you refer to it always in the masculine so you can translate it speak to the sons of Israel or the children of Israel so that's not definitive by any stretch of imagination tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations which means forever and to put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners. You shall have the tassel that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them, that you may not follow the tree to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined, and that you may remember and do all my commandments and be holy for your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. If this were the only verses on the subject, we would say, doesn't say that only men can wear tzitzit. Now let's go to Deuteronomy 22. Deuteronomy 22. Verse 5. A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. So cross-dressing is prohibited by God. Now let's say, what did people wear back in the days this was written? Tunics? Who wore tunics, men or women? Both. Both. What else did they wear? Sandals. Sandals. Who wore sandals, men or women? Both. Both. So what is it that the men wore that the women did not for the past 3,000 years? And that was the tallit. This is what for 3,000 years has been called the man's garment. And it's that one that has the seat on it. You didn't see women wearing tallits or seat until the modern era with the women's liberation movement and the fact that you can't tell me I can't do something because I'm a woman.
1: What would
0: have been a woman's garment? Um, the answer is it's going to be not a difference in the robe, but in the colors of the robe and the decorations of the robe, the fashions. Uh huh. Just like today, people look at this and go, women can't wear blue jeans. Of course they can wear blue jeans. Is there a difference between a woman's look and a man's look? Yeah. And all this is trying to tell us is don't cross-dress because why would people cross-dress? Was it for godly purposes? Or was it for sexually immoral purposes? So why are they now teaching elementary school kids to cross-dress and be because it's a perversion and they want to teach children the perversions are there women's headdresses that are distinctly women that have fringes on the corners sure does that offend me no when a woman puts on a man's to late and says well yes that's going to offend me not that anybody cares what offends me but that offends me. Okay, next question. Uh-oh. <laughs> <sighs> it's shared that a man can wear a tzitzit, but are they commanded to wear it? The answer is yes, they are. On the corners of their garment, the four corners. So if you're wearing a four-cornered garment, God requires you to put zitzit on it if you're a man. Most of our garments don't have four corners. The only garment that has four corners in the scriptures is the tallit. Now picture in your mind a robe which goes round and round the body. How many corners are there? There are no corners. It was the tallit that distinguished. Okay. Brother Wayne? Yes, sir. I wanted to ask, when or when? It doesn't say, does it? Correct. So whenever I wear a four-cornered garment, I will make sure I have zit seed on it. There are two kinds of talits. You're familiar with that, right? This is the talit gadol. There's also a talit katan, which is worn under the shirt like an undershirt. And it has the four corners and the seat, seat on it, and it's just not as open and pronounced as the talit What well, well, things,
1: things on your belts? I mean, didn't...
0: A lot of people put the tzitzit thingies on their belts. They're not required to do that, but they're not prohibited either. Men,
1: we're
0: saying. Yeah, men. Now, we just came from a conference in Texas where the women had ZZ on their belts and they were wearing deletes and all kinds of things where I just kind of kept my mouth shut for the most part. For the most part means I didn't do so good, but I tried, I tried.
1: His
0: has is it? I tried, okay, never mind. Next question. In Luke fourteen, sixteen. So let's turn over to Luke fourteen sixteen. Oops, there's more out there. Are all men Jew and Gentile required to wear it? Okay, I guess that's a fair question. Go back to Numbers chapter fifteen. Numbers fifteen is the chapter that has the commandment to wear the tzitzit, right? Yeah, children, Yep, yeah, that's the one. So Numbers chapter 15, we read verses 37 to 41, but let's back up to verse 15 and 16. It says, One ordinance shall be for you of the assembly and for the stranger who dwells with you. An ordinance forever throughout your generations, as you are, so shall the stranger be before the Lord. One law and one custom shall be for you and for the stranger who dwells with you. So for the Gentile believers that are grafted into Israel, does the commandment to wear a tzitzit apply to me? Yes, it does. For the part of me that was born Jewish, that applies to me too. Yes, sir. Okay, um, so when are you supposed to wear it? Did you just say that it doesn't say when you're supposed to wear it? It doesn't say when you're when supposed you wear to wear, wear it, but when you wear a four-cornered garment, it's mean. supposed to have the tzitzit on it. When do I wear a 4 corner garment? Only when I'm here at services. That's the only time I wear a four-cornered garment. So that's when I put the tzitzit on, unless I just want to wear it. Sometimes I wear my talit katan just because I want to. But
1: it's a commandment to do
0: it. It's a commandment. There's not, no commandment to wear a four-cornered garment. There's but a commandment do, that if you have a four-cornered garment, you put the tzitzit on the corners. What's the corner called? Knoth. Knoth. Go to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter
1: 3. Can you spell
0: K N A P F.
1: Is there an apostrophe anywhere in there?
0: No. But when you transliterate Hebrew to English, just write anything that makes you say "kanaf." That one makes me say nof.
1: <laughs> okay. Oh, well.
0: Verse two, Malachi 4-2. But to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. You see that word wings? That's kanafim. Messiah is not a bird. The healing are in the four corners of the tallit that he's wearing. The woman with the issue of blood crawls through the crowd and grabs the hem of his garment. It's not the hem. It's the zitzit. And he says, woman, your faith has made you whole. Yes, ma'am? What's this word I didn't. Malachi. Malachi, chapter 4, verse 2. That one. That one you're asking about. Okay. So when she grabs the Zitzit, he says, woman, your faith has made you whole. She had not said anything. But why is she grabbing the Zitzit at the corner of his prayer shawl?
1: Because she
0: believes he is this son of righteousness that was prophesied to come. That's just a term for Messiah. And yes, son, S-U-N, is correctly spelled. It does. It does it a great disservice. It's you read about the Talit a lot in the New Testament, but you never realize it because they never tell you that's what it is.
2: Because when you look up the word him in Greek, it's Kraspidon, is what it is, mm-hmm. which is the equivalent in Greek of Zizi.
0: Which like is the Zizi. It's a
2: direct, it's not him, it's Zizi.
0: Yep. But the translators of the Bible didn't want you to realize that Yeshua is a Jew and that he's following commandments.
2: Even though Matthew 1 1 says the son of Abraham.
0: David, the son of yep, even that, even that. I'm sure I've told you the story before. I was in Jerusalem at Capernaum, at the synagogue in Capernaum, where the base layer, the basalt black stone at the bottom, is from the synagogue Messiah taught in. And I was wearing my Zitzit and my kippah, but I was leading a group from one of the Presbyterian churches in Montgomery. They'd asked me to, to lead the, the tour, and the people were asking me in the synagogue, what are those things, and, and why are you wearing them? And I explained from the scriptures, and and the tour guide, who was around, I don't know, 29, I think, young woman, just ran crying out of the synagogue. And I went out the back and said, Gila, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. She said, you didn't offend me. All my life, I've heard about Jesus, the first pope. <laughs> But I never heard before that he was a Jew. She had never in her life heard that Yeshua was a Jew. And it was just more than she could take. So are all men Jew and Gentile to wear the seat? The answer is yes. When you're wearing a four-cornered garment. Okay. Luke chapter 14. That's where we're going, wasn't it? One, one last or two or last technicalities, please. Go ahead, Paul. A scarf has four corners. Is it a garment? A lot of scarves have fringe. Yet, yeah. if we wear a scarf, should it be seated? No, it's not the same kind of garment. Go that ahead. that would be considered and a head ornament.
1: Or,
0: or, you know, and poncho. Overcoat. Poncho? Poncho or is it more of a raincoat I always a poncho is, is like you said rounded since I don't have a poncho I had never really thought about it Paul oh ok ok I was thinking of the army kind or a
1: square thing that it can be a poncho it can be a tent But ok thank you
0: Wayne ok I was air force sorry ok in Luke 14 let's go to Luke 14 This is the first time that 1 Corinthians chapter 11 came up that I didn't have a guy sitting in the audience with long hair going, how dare you? (laughs) Okay. Luke 14, 16. Let me read it. It says, then he said to him, a certain man gave a great supper and invited many. So let me read the question because there's more to it than that. In Luke 14, 16, Yeshua begins the parable of the wedding and the guests being called, Greek word Kaleo, Greek word 2565, but they refused. So in Luke 14, 23, that's Luke 1423, Yeshua says, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel. That's Greek word onakazo, Greek word 315 them to come in so that my house may be filled. So there's a different Greek word being used for calling the guests and compelling those they find in the streets. says so this suggests that the Jews were invited but not with any kind of pressure to attend. Whereas those from among the nations are going to be compelled to accept the invitation. Greek 3.15 that is, the anagazo is a very strong word. Why are the Gentiles being compelled, but the Jews are only being invited and are allowed to make very weak excuses not to attend in the early part of the parable? Do you understand the question? Yeah. Wow problem is, in the parable, there is not a distinction between the Jews and Gentiles. That's where the confusion comes in. The the distinction is between the time periods. The time periods. Let's go to Luke 14, verses 15 to 24, and read the whole thing so we get the full context. The distinction is between Israel and the world, which is not the same as the Jews and the Gentiles. So, Luke 14, beginning verse 15, says, Now, when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then he said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. So, in the parable, this is Messiah that's come. To Israel in the first century, right? Who makes up Israel in the first century? You have to start with the exodus from Egypt. Were they all physical descendants of Jacob that came out of Egypt? Or was there a great mixed multitude? In the book of Esther, does it say that a great number of Gentiles became Jews, became grafted in? And at many other times, the strangers that are among you, like Ruth, were the Gentiles who said, we don't want to worship pagan gods anymore. We want to come be part of Israel. And in the lineage of Messiah, you can name how many that were born Gentile? Quite a few. few. Rahab, Ruth, there's others. So the people that made up the southern kingdom of Judah, because the northern kingdom of Israel was gone, Part of them are physical descendants of Jacob, and part of them are not, but they're all grafted in and have become one people. Verse 18. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I bought five yoke oxen, and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. And as we keep reading, the this, this people don't want to go into the kingdom. That's the point that Messiah is trying to make. He was presented to the nation of Israel, but not to the world. What did he say to the Gentile woman up in Lebanon? I've come, for I've come not before the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So that's the broad term for all those that have become Jews or have become part of Israel Whether they were physically born as a physical descendant or whether grafted in. Let's go then to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. Immediately, Yeshua made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. What's on the other side? The Gentile portion. The upper Galilee region had 10 Gentile cities called the Decapolis. Notice he goes over to Gennesaret. He's going over to an area where there are a lot of Gentiles. Does he go over to prophesy to the Gentiles or to preach to the Gentiles? The answer is no. But there's a Jewish man over there who is a demoniac, and they cast the demons out there. But even though he's in the area of the Decapolis he doesn't go to the Gentile cities and go preach to them and try and convert them he doesn't do that Matthew chapter 15 verses 21 to 20 and it's because of what Daniel said that in his first coming he was sent not but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel Matthew 15 21 to 28 Then Yeshua went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. That's in today's Lebanon. Was that Israel back then? No, he's getting away from the crowds. He's going for a time of prayer and reflection. Let's see. Uh, Evan just posted a personal account of long hair being used as part of the hippie movement to protest the military. Yep. I understand, and he was there, so he would know. Okay, we're in Matthew twenty-five. No, Matthew fifteen, verse twenty-one. There's where we are. Now, when Yeshua went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon, behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region. Why do they call her a woman of Canaan? She's not Jewish. She's not part of Israel and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her not a word. Why? And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. The answered said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. Answer and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Yeshua answered and said to her, a woman great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. So the first part of the answer to the question is, Messiah came and presented himself to the children of Israel to see whether they would accept him or not. And as a group did they accept him or not? They did not. They were individuals of course. God always has a remnant. But the majority, no. So let's go to Matthew 28. What happened when Israel rejected Messiah? Then the gospel could go out to the world. And that is Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen. what we call the Great Commission. And Yeshua came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you and line with you always, even to the end of the age. Does this mean the gospel is no longer being presented to Israel? No, it does not mean that. It simply means the mission field is now the entire world. So who is being compelled to come in to the kingdom in the parable? Everybody, Jew and Gentile alike. Northern Kingdom has been scattered to all the world, so right? When
2: the gospel sent out to the nations, the Jewish people are going to be there.
0: Right. And we're going to keep reading. Go to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. The key verse is 11, but we're going to read 5 to 13. Now, when Yeshua had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him. Is that centurion Jewish? No. Is he an Israelite? No. He's plain old, ordinary Gentile. Saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. Yeshua said to him, I will come and heal him. Centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. I also a man under authority having soldiers under me and I say to this one go and he goes to another come and he comes and my servant do this and he does it when Yeshua heard it he marveled and said to those who followed assuredly I say to you I have not found such great faith not even in Israel and I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down instead of or with with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast in out into outer darkness. They'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So in the parable, those who get compelled to come in are Jews and Gentiles alike. The gospel has gone out into the world. And it's gone out with great force. And I want to go to Romans chapter 1. We have two more References I want to look at. Before I wrap up this question. Romans chapter 1 verse 15. So as much as is in me. I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Messiah, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. But Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. Why did he preach to the Jews? He preached always what? To the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. So, never should we think, as sometimes the church tries to present, that God has forgotten about the Jewish people, and now we're out to evangelize the Gentiles. We're out to evangelize the whole world. And that brings us to Acts seventeen two.
1: Isn't that just fulfilling the promise that you're praying? Yeah. I mean, you, you should go to the Jew first because God committed to
0: it. Right. What does the scripture say to Jerusalem, then Judea, Samaria, then to the outermost parts of the world? Wait, so, Yes, and, uh, sir. People often um, try and use the scripture which says
3: Peter sent to the Jews and Paul to the Gentiles. But if you read that carefully, what it's basically saying is that Peter is sent to the bases to be, you know, the Judea and uh, Israel. And Paul is sent to the nations. It's not because that then makes sense of the fact that Paul always goes to the Jews first. So that the the verse that people tend to use, Peter's for the for the um, uh, Jews and Paul's for the
0: Gentiles, is understanding, It's just the arena in which they're to operate. Right. So Peter is the first person that goes to the Gentiles. Right. So Peter went east, and Paul went west. But Peter was the first one to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So you're right. It is simply a misunderstanding. And Acts 17, too, I think, to me, really drives home the point, which is why I put this as the last scripture for this particular question. In Acts 17, too, it says, then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, that is the synagogue of the Jews. And for three Sabbaths reason with them from the scriptures, He always goes first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. So in the parable, it's not that God weakly called the Jews, hoping they'd fail, so that he could then go compel the Gentiles. It was that He was presented to the house of Israel. First, because of the promises that were made in prophecy. And then the gospel went out to the entire world, Jew and Gentile alike. Everyone's being compelled now to come. Who has to come stand before one of the two judgments? Everybody. We're all compelled to come. So that's my answer to that one. Wayne, do you you care if
2: I add a scripture to that? Do you care if I add a scripture? No, add a scripture. So Deuteronomy 30, I feel like, is kind of like the fulfillment of, like...
0: Deuteronomy 30. ...is the fulfillment of that Great Commission, because it, it talks about
2: in verse 1, you know, when you call to mind, when you're among the nations, and you call to mind all the things that have been talked about, the blessing and the curse, and yep. you return or repent... And then all of these things are going to happen. The ultimate
0: fulfillment of that yep. is in the kingdom. Yep. Why did Israel ultimately go out and get spread throughout all the world? To because take the, the Torah and the knowledge of God with them. Yeah. But they
2: were spread out. It was like through their disobedience at the same time. You know,
0: that was, was so God always finds a way to make something good out of what we try and mess up. Huh? Right. <laughs> yeah. Very good. Now red circles. Next one says, if Hosea five fourteen to fifteen is the Roman diaspora of seventy common era, and Hosea six two is referring to Messiah returning after two days, that is after two thousand years from the diaspora to the return of the Messiah, then doesn't this mean Messiah won't return before twenty seventy at the earliest. Let's go look at Hosea five fourteen as we find the answer is well no. But well, let's see why. Hosea. What does Hosea mean? Salvation. Where does salvation come from? It comes from the Lord. We'll start in Hosea chapter 5, verse 14, because that's where the person asking the question begins. Verses 14 and 15 are about the three captivities that Israel suffered over history. Verse 14 begins, For I'll be like a lion to Ephraim, that's the Assyrian captivity of 722 BC. Like a young lion to the house of Judah, that's the Babylonian captivity, 606 to 583 BCE. I even, I will tear them and go away. I'll take them away and no one shall rescue. That's the Roman diaspora of 70 common era. I return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. What is that word, affliction? Zaam, Z-A apostrophe A-M. You and I might call it the tribulation period. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7 calls it the time of... Jacob's trouble come let us return to the Lord for he has torn but he will heal us he has stricken but he will bind us up after two days he will revive us on the third day he will raise us up that we may live in his sight let us know let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord his going forth is established as the morning he will come to us like the rain like the latter and former rain to the earth what's that referring to the first coming and the second coming so, there's two days between the first coming and the second coming. When did the first coming begin?
1: About 4 BC.
0: Yeah, there's a question there. Are we talking about from Messiah's birth? From his baptism and the start of his ministry? From his death? We don't really know, do we? <laughs> All we know is it's been about 2,000 years from the first coming. So we should be looking for the second. So when it says after two days to revive us, we might make the assumption he's referring back to the start of the Roman diaspora, but he doesn't really say that. He explains after two days by saying Messiah's comings are like the early and the latter rain, which is why I apply the two days to between the two comings of the Lord because of the way... Verses 2 and 3 go together. When verse 3 begins, let us know. It's let us understand this verse that we've just been given. What does it mean to us? See, we have a number 1 out here. Let's see. What was the time period for the Babylon captivity? About 606 to 583 is the three different waves that went in. And then... Those that went in in 606 had an opportunity to come out seven years later, as did each of the two successive waves. What's that? BCE. BCE. Did I say something different? No. You okay. Just didn't specify. Ah. We have a couple more minutes. Luke 19:23. This was a good question. It's got a lot of history in it. They're all good questions. Well, maybe except for those that I cut out and said, no, I ain't doing that. <laughs> Luke 1923 says, Why then did you not put my money in the bank? Then on my coming I might have collected it with interest. Remember that parable? Yeah. So it says, Luke 19.23, Yeshua in his parable is angry with the servant who doesn't put the mina in the, quote, bank, end quote, Greek word 5132, trapeza, to gain interest. Looking at this word trapeza, which occurs 15 times in the New Testament, it is translated as table 14 of these 15 times. Do you have any idea how the 1611 translators could have translated trapezes so strangely, but specifically when banks didn't exist until much later in the 17th century? So that's the question. How did the 1611 translators use a word that didn't exist? Is the question. Now let's get into history. Luke chapter 19, verses 11 to 27 is referring to the tables of the money changers. That's why in 14 of the 15 times is translated table. It should have been all 15 times. Talking so about the tables of the money changers. Not a bank like you think of today, but when you came up to Jerusalem, you could not use coins with pagan images on them to buy sacrifices the services or to put in the temple treasuries you had to change the money to Jewish currency the money changers would charge heavy fees for doing this it's not interest it was a fee it was
1: extortion, extortion.
0: Yeah, it, was extortion. it was unreasonable fees that's why Messiah overthrows the tables of the money changers so fearing that people would not understand what a, what a money, table, money changer's table was, modern translations use the word bank because that's where we would go to change money. It's just the idea. The fact that banks didn't exist until much later in the 17th century is actually not true. That's the fallacy in the question. The Banca Monte de Paschi di Siena is the oldest surviving bank in the world. Again slower. Banca Monte de Paschi di Siena is the oldest surviving bank in the world. It was founded in fourteen seventy two, which was before sixteen eleven, of course, in the Tuscan city of Siena, which at the time was a republic. So banks did precede the sixteen eleven King James version of the table. I'm sorry, of the Bible. Did I hear Wayne?
3: banks. In fact, Laodicea was so wealthy because of its um, banking system that when there was an earthquake um, around about the same time as Pompeii I think, uh, the, the city, the Caesar offered to rebuild You know what was broken down,
0: and they were able to say, don't, don't worry Caesar we can do it all ourselves they were so wealthy because temples were used as banks yeah, this is simply saying that the Banca Monte de Paschi di Siena is the oldest surviving bank, that it's still in operation, even though it was established in 1472. But banks went back into ancient times. So banks preceded the 1611 King James Version of the Bible. But what would 1611 England have understood where people should put their money to, to get interest? The word is an interest anyway it's it's <laughs> it's the fees of the money changers changers they're not allowed to collect usury. interest or usury we'll get to that in a minute wasn't against Torah for a Jew to charge interest to another Jew is the next part of the question the answer to that is yes go to Exodus twenty-two twenty-five. 25 the money changers were ripping people off they didn't care about the commandments of God but Exodus twenty-two twenty-five 25 does prohibit interest for one child of Israel to charge another. Exodus 22 5. If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. And Leviticus 25 36. Leviticus 25 36. We'll start in verse 35 for context, so we know what he's talking about. "If one of your brethren becomes poor and falls into poverty among you, then you shall help him, like a stranger or a sojourner that he may live with you. Take no usury or interest from him, but fear your God that your brother may live with you. And lastly, Deuteronomy 23:19. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 19. You shall not charge interest to your brother, interest on money or food or anything that is lent out at interest. Now let me add in a little history. Why are most bankers in Europe Jews? Because they were
1: not allowed because to do
0: Because the Christian church said, since we have replaced Israel, This applies to us, and we can't loan money at interest. Therefore, we're going to make the Jews do it.
1: Here, take all my money.
0: (laughs) And the Jewish bankers got rich and Rothschild, et cetera. But the Gentile Christians said, oh, we can't charge each other interest, so we'll make them do it.
1: (laughs) I read that the root word for interest means like the bite of a serpent.
0: (laughs) It may well.
3: Well,
1: how did they, how... but they shouldn't
0: be doing it either. Correct. Israel? No, the Jewish people shouldn't be doing it either, but um, they weren't exactly allowed to practice their religion in Europe. If you've ever studied Jewish history, and if you haven't, you really should, The way the Jews were treated throughout Europe, down through history, will just upset you. Everybody should read it just so they can be good and upset. Is
2: interest here the same word as it was there, table?
0: No. The money changers charged a fee for exchanging money. It was not interest. It's under entirely different rules. What's that?
2: This one means fee.
0: Which one? In Exodus, in, the Old Testament.
2: in Exodus, those... Uh, the, Deuteronomy 23.
0: Yeah, that's talking about interest. If I loan you money because you're poor, I can cause you or require you to repay so interest
2: me. interest here means different than interest in the first one we looked at. Yeah, the
0: first one was a fee. In Luke 19, it's not interest, and it's not a bank. All they right. have okay. substituted words to make us think it's something and that it's not. It's the fees charged by the money changers. They're allowed to charge a reasonable fee. When they were cheating people, that's when Messiah overturned the tables. And I heard somebody. Yeah, Ezekiel 18. Ezekiel 18? About the the sins of the sons and the fathers. It details that the righteous person does not charge interest or or whatever and it says it three or four times through the course of the chapter yep yeah. yep yeah. Ezekiel 18 if you want to just put that in your notes it talks about exacting usury and taking increase and in the righteous men don't do this so let's just make a note of that Ezekiel 18 so yeah okay So with that, we've run out of time. I'm sorry, I've even gone over a few minutes. But we'll pick up next time, Lord willing, in the next question, which is from John chapter 21.